You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have to study your word. We ask that you would bless. We pray that your spirit would be sent and that we would completely depend on you to understand the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in our first couple of presentations, we saw some amazing things. We're ready to move off from the first. I think we understand the first. Are you comfortable in saying, I think I understand the first angel's message? It is not wrong to say, yes, I get it. By faith, it is good to say, I believe I understand as much as I can the first angel's message. Now, um, a question that always comes up, what sources can I get to understand the book of Daniel and Revelation? And here is my favorite book ever written on the book of Revelation. It is by Ronko Stavanovic. He is a seminary professor at Andrews University. That's the layman's version. And then here's the big, thick textbook, which is about like that. That gives you a little bit more, more information. And I spent a year and a half, and I made a 62 um presentation PowerPoint on the book of Revelation, and I mostly based it off of that book and this book, God Cares Volume 2, God Cares Volume 1. Um, don't take a picture yet because there's more coming up. I'll, I'll let you know. Okay, so God Cares Volume 1 and 2, and then of course Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith, a very important book. And the, there you can take a picture. Okay, you got it? And then this book, Mark Finley, just came out with it. It's Understanding Daniel and Revelation by Mark Finley. It's the most, one of the most spiritual, content-oriented books that I've ever seen on the topic. I've read the whole thing. I absolutely love it. Um, Who's Afraid of the Judgment by Roy Gain. He's also a seminary professor of Old Testament at Andrews University. And 1844 Made Simple by Clifford Goldstein. If you haven't read this book, sell something like you don't need, like your shoes, and go buy this book. Okay? This is a very, very important book. Clifford Goldstein's a very smart guy, but he writes very simply, and a lot of what I shared is from this book. Okay? Um, I mentioned earlier in, uh, I think, part one, that a lot of what we hear today from the pulpits around the world is that we should love Jesus and only love Jesus and love, love, love is all we hear. I want to read you a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy to show you what I meant by what I said a couple days ago. She says, it is true that what? Hey, when I say spiritualism, what for, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Ouija boards, dead people, seances. But in the scriptures, spiritualism takes on a broader um, uh, identity, and it also refers to false doctrines. Doctrines of what? Demons. Okay, so uh, su giving heed to seducing seed, seducing um, spirits, and doctrines of demons. So you, can, you, you understand now that, that spiritualism is much more than just dead people talking. It is true that spiritualism is now changing its form and veiling some of its more objectionable features. It is assuming a what? Christian guise, but its utterances from the platform and from the press have been the, before the public for many years. And in, in these, its real character stands revealed. 
These teachings cannot be denied or hidden, even in its spiritualism, present form. So far from being more worthy of toleration than formerly, it is really a more dangerous because it is a more subtle deception. While it formerly denounced Christ and the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart. While its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect, love is dwelt upon as the what? I mean, is love is love very important to God? Doesn't 1 John 4, 8 says God is love? It doesn't say he has love or likes love or is loving. It says the very definition of God is what? Love. So that's very important. But we fear God, but we also do what? Give him glory. So fearing God leads to obedience. And so in a lot of pulpits around the world on Sundays that you'll hear, and even some of our pulpits, you'll, you'll hear, um, love God, that's all you have to do. That's it. Just love, just love, just love. And you don't have to worry about keeping the Sabbath or obedience because it's all legalism. Now let's, let's think this through. Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Then is keeping the Sabbath legalism? No. If you keep the Sabbath because you think you're better than other people, or if you keep the Sabbath because you think that God will love you more, then that is legalism. Legalism is not really what you do, but it's why you do it. Okay? So she says, Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to something that Martin Luther called cheap grace. Cheap grace is, is God's power to forgive without God's power to overcome. God's power to forgive sin without God's power to overcome sin is what Martin Luther called cheap grace, and I 100% agree with that, and I think the Bible does too. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. It is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil, God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight. The people are taught to regard the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments as a dead letter. Pleasing, bewitching fables captivate the senses and lead men to what? So teaching the Bible, they actually reject the Bible because the chief attribute of God is love. We don't actually have to keep the Sabbath. God doesn't actually mean what he says. The sermon that Satan preached, has the Lord indeed said? Does he really mean what he says? That's what Satan was, was saying, in other words, to Eve. Does God mean what he says? Well, how many times in the Bible can you think about when God such as when God told Naaman, go dip in which river? The Jordan River, and he wanted to go to one of his rivers in his area. And then God said, go dip in the Jordan River? How many times? Seven. Suppose he said, well, the Damascus in six times is okay. The story of Naaman would have been totally different. So he came down six times. On the sixth, he wasn't clean, but on the seventh, he came up, and guess what? It was all gone because that is what God said. Has the Lord indeed said? Yes, the Lord has indeed said. God means what God says. Just ask Uzzah, right? 
Don't touch the ark, put it up. It worked for the world because the world didn't know how to carry the ark, but God's people do. And so they were supposed to carry the ark on the staves that go in between the rings, and they carried it on the cart that was led by the calves, and it tipped and fell. Uzer went to touch the ark, bam, that's what happened. Okay? Does God mean what God says? I can go on and on. I march around Jericho six times, or one time for six days. But on the seventh day, do it how many times? Seven times, right? God is very, very, very precise in what he asks us to do. And therefore, he does mean what he says. Christ is verily denied as it for. So preaching about Christ, only one half of the gospel only teaching about fearing God, but not teaching the, the giving him glory part, she says, is denying Christ. Christ is verily as denied as before, but Satan has so blinded the eyes of the people that the deception is not discerned. From a little book that you might recognize, The Great Controversy, page 557 and 558, that is not in your, in, in your notes. Write that text down. Write that statement down. Yes. And the reason why, that is a very nice question. Okay, the question was for you out there in CD land, or we don't really do CD land, digital land. The question was, are these books different? The answer is yes. And, and the reason why is because there is no Seventh-day Adventist version of Daniel and Revelation. We do not have a uniform uh, explanation for every verse and every chapter and every concept in Daniel and Revelation. For instance, when you study the trumpets, there's a whole bunch of different ideas about the trumpets. There's different ideas about the 144,000. I can tell you what I believe, but you know, if it's not from the Bible, it doesn't matter. Amen? Because uniformity is not unanimity. Does that make sense? God doesn't need us all dressing the exact same way, thinking the exact same thing, because God has given everybody a different uh, personality. But truth is truth. That doesn't, I'm not saying that you can just believe what you want about Daniel and Revelation, because when the text says, it's very clear. But one of the ways to, which leads to another question about Revelation, how do we understand the book of Revelation? Oftentimes, the jar is labeled. In other words, a lamb represents Jesus. The dragon represents Satan, right? A beast represents a kingdom. And the horn is its because the angel says that's what it means. Now, when the jar is not labeled in the book of Revelation, how many verses are in Revelation? 404. How many of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament? 276. So when the symbol is not clearly identified, when the jar is not labeled, you must go to the Old Testament to find how the Old Testament prophet used, the, see the story, how the prophet used the symbol, and then John applies. For instance, and when you study the trumpets, when you get into the third and fourth trumpet, the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. In the Old Testament, when Israel was in deep apostasy, the sun, moon, and stars were metaphorically were uh, were darkened. I think that the the third and fourth trumpet is is identifying the development of the papacy, and at that time, the church was going further and further from the truth. Therefore, we see the sun, moon, and stars darkened, because that's what happened in the Old Testament when Israel was following idolatry and not keeping the Sabbath and worshiping other, other gods. Okay, so the way to understand Revelation is not by the news or what you what you think at the time. 
We understand scripture by scripture. Scripture explains itself. That is the, the principle of prophetic interpretation that we have always used. Okay? All right, now, sermon begins. That was all prelim stuff to get to this. You ready? Second angel, here we go. Let's go to Revelation 14 and verse 8. 14 and verse 8. And see, when people get into arguments at Sabbath school, well, 144,000 is a literal number. No, it's not. It's a spiritual number. Rah! And we have this big blow up at Sabbath school when there, there is not a definite, concrete, 100% answer on, on the subject. I mean, I believe it's a spiritual number describing the people who are alive at the time of the second coming, and I can give you about seven reasons why. But here's what you say. Say, it seems to me, or what makes sense to me, or this is what I can honestly teach. You can't say, this is what it means, because you don't know, like, no. Like, I know the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. That's, see, there's something called the doctrines of the church and the teachings of the church. The doctrines of the church are voted at GC, updated every five years at a general session, Right? That's the doctrines, the 28 fundamental beliefs. Teachings of the church are things like veganism or vegetarianism. It's not a doctrine. It's not a test of fellowship. You understand what I'm saying? Like a teaching of the church is Michael the archangel. We believe that it possibly is the name that Jesus may have been called before he became Jesus. It's the battle name for Jesus. Every time you see Michael, he's always doing battle with Satan, and Michael always wins. Satan always loses. That's not a doctrine. That is a teaching. You understand the difference between the two? The doctrines, those, those are issues that we can church discipline over. Teachings you need to let, let there be some room for interpretation. And that is one of the easiest ways to get along with people in Sabbath school. When it is not clearly distinguished, don't have such a strong opinion. Be only married to your spouse, not your own opinion. Not your pet doctrines, okay? If you can show me something biblical, I will change in a second. And Kendra's been my church member for eight years, and she'll tell you that's, that's she's shown me stuff that I taught, and she's shown me a couple things, and I had to change what I believe on some things because she's shown me one or two things. There's no pride. It's the Word of God. That's what matters, not us, right? So don't come with this hard, hard position where this is what it means. You have to be honest and say, this is what I believe it means, and if I can learn something more scriptural, then I will change in a second. Amen? Intellectual honesty. Intellectual honesty. That's what we're going for. Okay, 14.8. Are we there? Revelation 14.8 is not a misprint. Turn to it in your Bibles. Are we there? And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. A lot going on here in just one, one verse. So we see there's something, a city called Babylon, it's fallen. There's wine of fornication. We see God's wrath. We see death versus preservation of self, which is really what the whole uh, spiritual content of the second angel's message is. 
Okay, on the screen, and another angel followed saying with a loud voice. Now notice that what you don't see here, and another angel followed them saying, Babylon is fallen, that great city. Notice what you don't see is the first angel is given with a megaphone, the loud voice. The third angel is given with the megaphone, the loud voice. The second angel is not given with a loud voice. Does that mean that the second angel is, is shy and he's a recluse? and uh, he doesn't like to be around people and the first and third angels are the sanguine of the, of the three? No. It's because <laughs> this message, I will honestly tell you, the Babylon sermon at an evangelistic meeting is probably the hardest sermon to preach. It's, it's one of the hardest to hear. It's the one that you need to have the most tact. Okay? It's the one that, it's the one that you don't want to hear that everything you've believed is not actually true. Like the seventh day is the Sabbath and the dead don't go to heaven or hell. Death is like a sleep and God hits play at the resurrection. That's hard, that's hard stuff to hear, okay? That's why I believe the second angel isn't given with a loud voice because there we must use the most Christian love and Christian tact, okay? A lot of people use the three angels' message as a, a Catholic bashing club, but that is not how God uses the three angels' messages. The, the spiritual content of the three angels' messages are nothing but righteousness by faith, and you're really going to get that today. Where does John learn about a call to come out of Babylon in the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament background to the second angels' message? Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51 and verse 6. Are you there? No, you're not because I just said it. Okay, Jeremiah 51 and verse 6. You'll find this language very familiar because John is quoting from this text. And he's also quoting, we're going to go next to Isaiah 21 verse 9. Jeremiah 51 and verse 6. This sounds a lot like Revelation 18 verse 4, which says, Come out of Babylon, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. All right, Jeremiah 51 and verse 6. Are you there? Flee from the midst of where? Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. In other words, do not share in her sins. This is where John gets the, the, the message of Revelation 18, verse 4. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth what? Drunk. Okay, so Babylon in the Old Testament was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine. Okay, what does the text say? And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, that great city, because she has made what? All the nations drink of the wine of her wrath of her fornication. And then in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, it says, that made all the earth drunk, the nations drunk her, drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged, and Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Okay, so we're learning. Now go to Isaiah, Isaiah 21 and verse 9. So you're, what you're seeing here is that this, 
the, the Old Testament foundation for the second angel's message is both in Isaiah 21, verse 9, Jeremiah 51, 6 through 8, and also bound up in the life of Abraham. And I'll show you that in just a minute. For like we said yesterday, the first angel's message, the content of that is from Ecclesiastes 12 and 13. Just the same in the second angel, John is quoting in the, from the Old Testament. Isaiah 21 and verse 9. And look, here comes a chariot, men with horsemen, men with a pair of horsemen. Then he said, what are those next words? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. All the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground, right? So John is merely quoting from the Old Testament in the second angel. Now what is the spiritual lesson of the second angel? Now go to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 31. Genesis 11 and verse 31. This is the call to Abraham's dad. His name was Terah. And he told him to go somewhere from some place. Let's see where that was. Where that was, eleven thirty-one of Genesis. Eleven thirty-one. It says, "And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out from them from where." Ur of the land of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So God called Terah to get thee up out of the land of the Ur of Chaldees, and they were supposed to go all the way to Canaan, but where did they stop? Haran, right? So here, Terah followed God to leave, but he did not follow God the whole way because he stopped at Haran and did not go all the way to Canaan. God is not calling his people today to follow him 50%. 50% of this call was followed. Go, he went. Go to Canaan, he stopped in Haran. This is partial obedience, okay? God saw something special in, in, uh, in, in Abraham, and they called now goes from Terah to Abraham. Go to 12, verse 1. 12, verse 1. You should just move your eyes over to chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family. Your family won't follow God. I'm going to give you a new family. This is the call that many people hear in their churches and respond to our Bible studies and our evangelistic meetings. Your church family will not follow the truth. I'm calling you out of that into a church family that will. Okay? And from the, your father's house to a land that I will show you, I will make of you a great nation. And then he goes on to recite all the blessings. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to get out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Here, this obedience is characterized by the author of Hebrews as positive or negative. Which do you think? So obedience, therefore, is not legalism since the author of, Le of Hebrews characterizes his obedience by faith as positive. Amen? It's good to have Bible arguments. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. You know what the word church means? It's the, from the Hebrew word ecclesia. It means called out ones. 
Okay, that's what the church is. Called out ones. The church is not a beautiful building. The church is you. The church is people. They were called out. You were called out from something. You were called out from somewhere. You were called out from a a mindset that was worldly into a mindset that is biblical. So he says he didn't know where he was going. And so he went anyway. And that call, friends, took a lot of faith. And that is the basis of the second angel's message. Where was Ur? Now, most people don't put this together because this is just so awesome. Look, Ur was right here. See right here? Ur was where Terah was when the first call. See where they had to travel to get to Haran? They literally came out of where? Babylon. So Abram and his family came out of Babylon, camped in Haran, and that's where the second call came, or I guess the first call to Abraham to go to the land of Canaan, to the land flowing with milk and honey. It took faith to follow that call. Abraham, go. Where? I don't know. Just go. I'll tell you when you've you've arrived. Go to Canaan. That's incredible. He didn't know where he was going, and it took a whole lot of faith. I mean... Ladies, what if your husband told you that God woke me up? Your husband comes to you at breakfast and you're eating your Cheerios or whatever your Wheaties or flaxseed or whatever it is that we eat and omega-3 oils and all this, right? And, and uh, you tell your wife, sweetie, God told me to go. Honey, where did he tell you? Um, I don't know. He just told me to go. Are you ready to go? That's that's what Abraham was faced with. And by faith, he obeyed. That is why we show up to church on the seventh day of the week when the whole world worships on Sunday. This is one one of the definitions of what Paul says. By faith, we establish the law. It doesn't make sense why we should honor on the seventh day of the week. It doesn't make sense why we should not eat from that tree over there. Has the Lord indeed said? Yes, he has said. It's the seventh day. God has blessed the seventh day because his word has said it. Amen? The tree of knowledge was condemned because God's word says it was. It is the only commandment that requires faith. It makes sense why we should not kill, commit adultery, lie, or steal. Because there is no culture in the world where those things are honorable. But it's hard for people to understand why the Sabbath, which is a part of the Ten Commandments, which is a part of the moral code of God's government, how what day you worship on is a moral issue. It's a moral issue because it's one-tenth of God's commandments. And by the way, it's the biggest of all ten. And without the Sabbath, you don't know why you keep the other nine. I keep the Sabbath because it's the day that God showed me that I am valuable to him. I was not, want, I was not needed. The earth and, and the universe is going to go fine if Travis was never born. Man is not necessary. God is necessary. But when man chose rebellion, Jesus stepped in between the claims of the law and said, in essence, hold on, Father, before you give them what they have chosen, let me step in, take their penalty, and I will give them the power to keep the law and break the power of Satan and sin over this planet and give them a supernatural ability to obey. That's the gospel, friends. 
That's given to you by faith. It is not something that you try real hard. Bible says in Acts 5.31 that repentance is given to Israel. From front to back, God gives you your spiritual experience. How do you become a Christian? By faith. How do you stay a Christian? By faith. How do you make it through the, the time of trouble? By faith. The whole, t- the whole time, friends, your entire Christian experience is not your effort. Yes, it does take human effort, but even that human effort is given to you by faith. Galatians 5, 6, write it down and check it. It says, faith working by, anybody know? Love, right? Faith working by love. By, because we love, we obey. It's very, very simple. If your obedience to God is because of love, it's not possible for you to be a legalist. In fact, the Sabbath was actually given to make legalism impossible because the Sabbath says, Jesus is my creator, and then Moses gives us a new reason to keep the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 in verse 12, I think it is. Let me... um. This is not in the notes. This is free. Okay. Let me take you on a little side tangent and give you a little another arrow about the Sabbath. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, because I'm almost halfway through with my presentation anyway, because I'm talking too fast. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the second time God God repeats the, the Ten Commandments. And then in verse 15, after the deliverance from Egypt, 5.15 of Deuteronomy, God gives Israel a second reason to keep the Sabbath. The first reason in the Exodus version of the Ten Commandments is God as creator. The second reason to keep the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 is God as redeemer. Okay, watch this. Deuteronomy 5.15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to what? Keep the Sabbath day. So the Exodus version, God is my creator. The the Deuteronomy version, God is my redeemer. If you keep the seventh-day Sabbath with the mindset that I am not needed, but I am wanted, and God shows me how much he wants me by sending his only son to die on the cross, something that was not necessary for him to do, but it was the way that he could show how the angels and all the other worlds and you and me how much he really loved us, and it's the day to show that you're not necessarily Listen, I would rather be wanted more than needed any day. You have self-esteem issues. You, you look in the mirror and you think you're fat, ugly, dumb, or stupid. God says you are not because your mind and my blood has purchased you. 1 Peter 1.18 says you are not redeemed with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Son of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. The Sabbath is the day to celebrate your value that God places on your life. And if you understand that about the Sabbath, legalism is impossible. The Sabbath is the day to celebrate that Jesus wanted you, that he created you, and after you fall into sin, he has the power to recreate your heart to make you less like you and more like Jesus. I mean, if that's legalism, sign me up. Amen? All right, I think you get the point. All right, back to, back to this presentation. 
So it took faith to, to follow that call that God had, had gave to Abraham. What was God telling Abraham to do when he said, get out to him? After the Babel dispersion from Babel idolatry again became well nigh universal, and the Lord finally left the hardened transgressors to follow their evil ways, while he chose Abraham of the line of Shem and made him the keeper of his law for future generations, I stepped on it. I will. Abraham had grown up in the midst of the superstition and heathenism, even in his father's household, right? By whom the knowledge of God had been preserved, were yielding to the seductive influences surrounding them, and they served other gods than Jehovah. You see, Abraham, Abraham, Abram's father, Terah, had a patron god. The god's name was Sin, okay? It was a lunar god. What does this tell us? They were called to leave from Ur, go to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran, and apparently Terah had a line drawn that he would not cross. He would go partway with God, but not all the way with God. Do you have a line that says that you will not cross when God says come out? It's something to consider. God was telling Abraham to leave behind the ways of your country, your father's idols, the cherished things in your father's house. In a real sense, God was calling Abraham out of Babylon. The message of God came to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee in order that God might qualify him for his great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles, Abraham must be separated from the early association of, of his earlier life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his, his servant. So leaving Babylon was Abraham's first step. Now Babylon must leave Abraham. Abraham left Babylon, which was a strong culture, but as many strong cultures leave their mark on, on people, Babylon did not leave Abraham. How do we know? One of my favorite preachers in the whole world is C.D. Brooks. Y'all know about Pastor Brooks? Okay, you should have some apps on your phone, Audioverse and American Christian Ministries. Go to your app store and type in both of those. There's thousands of Adventist, um, Seventh-day Adventist sermons. And on American Christian Ministries, there's like 600 sermons of C.D. Brooks. I walked up to him in a GYC at Chattanooga, and I said, Pastor Brooks, I want to thank you for your ministry. Half of what I preach is from you. <laughs> and he said, by all means, borrow away. It was awesome. So he said in his Breath of Life crusade from 1978, which was the year that I was born, in his way, you got to get out of Babylon, and Babylon's got to get out of you. You can take a man out of Babylon, but it is hard to take a man, Babylon, out of the man. Yes, God uprooted Abram from the soil of Babylon, but now God must begin the work of getting Babylon out of Abraham. But before we see how God does this, Let's define Babylon. Why was the Tower of Babel built? Someone say. What do you think? Okay, flood insurance. Right? What was, what was the other reason? God said, 
go all over the world and make a great name for me. And when you read this in Genesis 11, it says, no, we will stay right here and make a great name for ourselves. So we want to uplift ourselves and we want flood insurance in case you break out against us and and send a big flood. So I will call the religion of Babylon self-preservation without God. Can we see that from the text? Babylon is self-preservation without God. The schemes of Babel, now let's see if Ellen White agrees. The schemes of the Babel builders ended in shame and defeat. The monument to their pride became the memorial of their folly. Yet men are continually pursuing the same course. What are those next three words? Depending on upon self and rejecting God's law. What is Babylon? Self-preservation without God. It is the, the principle that Satan tried to carry out in heaven, the same that governed Cain in presenting his offer. So the question is, did Abraham struggle with self-preservation? We're not going there because we don't have enough time. Most of you know these Bible stories anyway. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham went down to Egypt. And apparently, Sarah was really something to look at. Young people might say she was hot right and the pharaoh saw her and he says oh i gotta get me one of those right and what did abraham do he said she is my sister and told a half truth because he was a half sister right and he did that because he was trying to preserve has babylon left abraham yet okay fast forward to genesis chapter 16 God said that in Isaac your seed shall be called. But then his wife has a brilliant idea. Maybe she meant through, the, through, through Hagar, my handmaid. And so he went along with that, committed adultery with Hagar. Here comes Ishmael. And then God said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The seed shall not be through Ishmael or Hagar. It shall be through your wife, Sarah. And Isaac, the seed shall be called. And so she had to leave. Why was Abraham going to plan B? Because he was trying to preserve self without God. Has Babylon left Abraham yet? No. Now fast forward to Genesis chapter 20. Abraham goes to see Abimelech. Sarah had gotten better with age. And Abimelech says the exact same thing. Uh, she's very pretty. I will take her as my wife. And, and what, did, what did Abraham say? She is my sister. Have at it. Right? That's, that's, that's what happened. So why did he do that? He thought that Abimelech would kill him or one of his servants. Has Babylon left Abraham? But there's one more test. There's one more test. Now go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. You know the story. Finally, there is a son born to him named Isaac from the right woman. And that was his son, his only son whom he loved. And then God tells him to do something that is absolutely against his character because human sacrifice had been forbidden, right? That's what the people who worship Moloch and Chemosh do. And God says, no, don't do it. But then God tells Abraham to do something that is absolutely crazy. I've been meaning to preach a sermon called, Is God Crazy? And I just never did, Kendra. I'm sorry. I didn't get it at Troy. I'll have to send you the link when I do it at Edenville. Okay, I'll come back and guest speak. Kendra is one of my church members at Troy. I'm moving over to Edenville and Claire on July, July 10th. Okay, so Genesis chapter 
Genesis chapter 22, and where do I want to begin? I don't want to go to verse 7. Genesis 7 and verse 9. Let's go to 7 and verse 9. No, let's go to verse 7. No, let's just start where I said. Chapter 22, verse 7. Chapter 22, verse 7. So Isaac's walking around, and they're going to sacrifice, right? And Isaac's not dumb. He's thinking, I see, you know, the wood, I see the fire, but where's this sacrifice? Dad, what's going on? Isaac spoke to, his, to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Imagine the extreme pressure that Abraham is under right here, okay? Then he said, look the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. And there's a whole bunch of detail right there that I don't have time to get into. So the two of them went together, and they came to a place where God had told them, and Abraham built an altar and placed the wood, and he bound Isaac his son, and laid him up on the altar. There probably is some conversation that happened there that's not recorded because between the last couple verses, Isaac submitted to his father and he was willing to be laid on the altar as a living sacrifice. Sound like Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice? This is probably where Paul is, is referencing. Okay? So Isaac surrendered his life to his father. It took a faith, a certain amount of faith for Isaac to believe that his dad was actually hearing God and that he wasn't religiously preoccupied. Do you know that term, religiously preoccupied? It means crazy. That's what it means. And so now they in verse 10, it says, And Abraham stretched out his hand, and all the mistakes that he had made with Abimelech and, Ish and Ishmael and Hagar and, uh, and Pharaoh were probably going through his mind from here to here. And finally, he had made a full surrender to God, and he was about to come down. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not, verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you what? Because you're giving me glory. You're finally obeying me. That's the first angel right there. That's essence, the essence of the first angel, fearing God, which leads to obedience. And so has Babylon finally left Abraham? Yes, because he made a full surrender to what God had asked him to do. So, here, God said, take now Isaac, your son, your only... Did Abraham forget that Isaac was his only son? Where else do you hear that language? Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, your only begotten. Where does that sound like? That's right. Jesus was probably quoting... Genesis 22, when he was speaking Nicodemus at nighttime, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That's the essence of this story with Abraham and Isaac, okay? So the Bible is so interwoven with itself. Okay, so here, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that because I already said it. 
Isaac is a symbol of Jesus here in the story, God's only son. The surrender of Isaac represents the complete and total surrender of the heart, a surrender of the past, the present, and the future. And if we're totally honest with ourselves and we're totally being completely transparent here, we're still walking Isaac around in the land of Moriah and not taking him all the way up to the altar. Because if I asked you, and don't raise your hands, I don't need any overpious saints here, how many people are completely surrendered in your diet habits, your entertainment habits, your, your eating, sleeping, dressing, um, Bible study habits, your, the way that you think about people, and the way that you value God and Scripture? How many here are totally 100% surrendered to God? A lot of us are still walking with Isaac around in the land of Moriah. One day, hopefully we'll get there. Amen? By the power of the Spirit. We are afraid that God is going to call us to do something stupid and, or crazy that we are uncomfortable doing, and we, we, we just kind of hold on a little bit sometimes, don't we? Because we still want to have Isaac here in our arms, holding him like a little baby instead of sacrificing Isaac. And you know, Isaac is a symbol of that one sin that you won't let go of. Don't walk around with Isaac. Take him up to the altar. Amen? All right. So what I'm hoping that you're seeing is that the three angels' message is not just another time to Catholic bash. It's a time to look at your own soul. The Jews thought that Rome was their problem when the Jews were the Jews' problem, not Rome. Because if the Jews were totally obedient to God, they would have never, ever came under Roman rule. Amen? If you can't say amen, say ouch. I'm preaching to myself too. So this is evidence that Babylon has not completely left us yet. So there's a concept here that we, that we hear in the Bible where God has called you to be is the best place for you to be. I can't be any more happy than is if I was out in the world trying to make myself happy with the world's things, right? Because the best place for you to be is the place where God has, has called you to be. That was a wasp. All right. So, but he did not hesitate to obey the call. Patriarchs and Prophets 126. He did not hesitate to obey the call. He had no question to ask concerning the land of promise, whether the soil was fertile and the climate healthful, whether the country afforded agreeable surroundings and would afford opportunities for amassing wealth. God had spoken and his servant must obey. The happiest place on earth for him was the place where God would have him to be. So that begs the question. Are you in the place where God has called you to be? How many here have been called to give Bible studies? But we come up with 15 reasons why we can't because we're not as smart as the pastor. Oh, well, I mean, in some cases, that might be good, right? But, the, but or I don't have the degree or I don't have, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm afraid. What if I get someone who knows more than me? Friends, don't worry about all that and let your light so shine before all men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, we should ask ourselves this question, am I where God wants us to be? And if not, how do I get there? The answer is simple. God gave a call to Abraham. He took a journey, just like Jonah, and then finally, he got it right. I'm glad that there's stories like Abraham and Jonah in the scriptures because it shows that God went with them 
on their little journey away from him, and he stuck with them and then finally brought them back around to a place of surrender. Amen? So, how does Abraham's call relate to the three angels or the third angel's message? The first angel says, don't worship the beast, worship him who made, because the hour of his judgment has come. The second angel says, Babylon has fallen and causes the whole world to commit spirit of fornication, and you need to come out from that by faith. Okay? Then the third angel is forced worship and faith in Jesus. Okay? So the second angel involves spiritual fornication. What did Abraham do with Hagar? It's called adultery. Okay? Sexual sin. That's, that's the historical background for the second angel. Because those who dwell upon the earth reject the everlasting gospel. They accepted half of it, the fear God part. Reject the give glory part. We want Jesus, but we don't want his law. We want a savior. We want a lamb, but we don't want a Lord. Right? That's why Babylon was formed because they rejected the truth of God's word. And I personally believe that Babylon formed when the Catholics rejected the Protestant reformers. I believe that's when Babylon was here in it, the spiritual Babylon, end time Babylon. I believe that Babylon was, was formed when the papacy rejected guys like Martin Luther and Huss and all the rest of the Protestant reformers. Okay? So that's, that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it unless I see something better. So, why did those who dwell on the earth... Now, let's go forward to the third angel, and let's tie this all together. Why did those who dwell upon the third angel receive the mark? Go to Revelation 13, and we're just about done. Revelation 13 and verse 15. What were the two reasons the people received the mark? And it'll sound very, very familiar. Revelation 13 and verse 15. Are you there? He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast, you know what the image of the beast is? It's when the, the papacy teams up with America and forces the mark. That's the image, okay? You look in the mirror, you see an image. The image of the beast is the image to the beast. What was the beast like in the Dark Ages? It was a church that had the sword. The, the, the America will one bit day be the sword in the hand of the papacy, and when those two join, that forms the image to what the beast was like when he had the church and the sword. So America will be the sword in the hand of the papacy one day. That's where Revelation 13 says we're going. That's my understanding of the image of the beast. So, notice what it says. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not what? Worship the image of the beast to be what? So what was the first reason they took the mark? They didn't want to be? Oh, I heard you guys are making the connection. Self-preservation. What did Abraham not want to be? Killed, right? The first reason is they were trying to preserve self by, by staying alive. There's a second reason. Jump down to verse 17. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the, the mark, right? So we don't want to die, and we want to be able to work, to earn money, to buy food, and whatever it is that I need. What is that called? 
Self-preservation without God. So the religion at the end time is simply this, the faith of Jesus and self-preservation without God. It's the faith of Jesus and the religion of Babylon. So the two reasons that they received the mark were to avoid the death decree and to be able to buy or sell. What is the opposite of self-preservation without God? Go to Revelation 14, verse 12, and you'll get a little snippet of tomorrow. Revelation 14 and verse 12. In the third angel's message, we hear about torture. We hear about burning with fire and brimstone. And then it sounds negative until you get to verse 12, right? 9 through 11 is very negative. But when you get to verse 12, it turns very positive because it highlights the little group of people who are going to be just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they will stand up and say, Oh, king, we are not careful to answer you. Our God is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your image. Okay, 1412, are you there? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Those who refuse the mark of the beast have rejected the religion of Babylon, which is self-preservation without God, and have accepted the faith of Jesus, which is total self-sacrifice. Just like Isaac. Just like, just like Isaac. Revelation 18.4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. And today, friends, the call of God is to get thee up out of the land of the Ur of Chaldees and leave your parents' religion, leave your parents' idols, leave your parents' uh, uh, things that they value above God. I don't know if your parents have idols or whatever. They may be Enoch's. But I'm telling you, chances are there are some people here who are struggling with smoking, who are struggling with porn, who are struggling with self-image idea. There are people who think that they're too dumb to give Bible studies. Friends, the just shall live by faith. My goodness, if you could have known me 15 years ago, I should have been disfellowshipped from this church. Okay? The just shall live by faith and come out from their past life and live life by the Spirit and give glory to God. And that is what the spiritual content of the second angel is all about. Righteousness by faith. So the people who take the mark have taken it because they know biblically that they are wrong and they're still choosing to follow the beast for convenience or because they, well, they actually believe that the beast can can, can survive, they, that they can help them survive. But today, friends, God has given us an education that you cannot be the same person after hearing something like this. You can't. God is calling all of us into a deeper commitment. And maybe you're not ready to make that full and total complete sacrifice to God today, but you're ready to go a couple steps closer. Let me tell you, that's spiritual growth. That is spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and, and ask God to give us the power to make a full, complete surrender to him today. Father, maybe someone here is ready to make that full and complete surrender. And maybe that might mean a little bit of a change in their life. Maybe there's something that, that the Lord has put his finger on and, 
You know exactly what it is because you think about it while you drive down the road, while you're falling asleep and you have those final quiet moments, and you know what it is. The call of God is distinct and clear. Father, give us the faith to give you what you ask for, which is our heart and all of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.